I'm Marcus Smith for The Morning Show here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I think I've got the best job in the whole wide world, and one of the reasons is because I get to share my thoughts, whatever they are, with you, and I get to do it in the way that I get to pull you into my thrall, and I get to get you thinking that whatever whatever I happen to be thinking about, you should be thinking about too, and it's a very important subject, whatever it is. And and so that's a great job. It's a position of power, and thank goodness for the rule of law. You know, it keeps me from getting real heady. But anyway, where are we where are we going with all of this? Um, just last night. I was talking with my wife, and, and we were talking. We had some family from out of town visiting with us. So we're sitting around having dinner, uh, a little bit of dessert out on the back lawn, and, and we start talking about my wife's brother who works in law enforcement on a drug enforcement kind of mission thing. And we got to saying, you know, isn't it nice that when you hear all those terrible drug bust stories, they're just never close to home. Like right here in Provo, we're in such a safe little place. And, and I, I said something really foolish. And I said, I said, yeah, you, you never hear of a, like a meth lab in Provo. So I wake up this morning and I read the news and the first story that jumps out at me is about a, a meth lab bust in Provo, Utah. So I was just absolutely wrong. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm with my children and we're talking about how do you raise children? What do you, what do you want them to be when they grow up? And, and I've often said to my children around the dinner table, you know, you, you might want to consider being in what they call the helping professions where you get, to, you get to help people. You get to do some good. And we talked about, you know, you can be a doctor or you could be a nurse or you could be, uh, you know, work in some fashion where you're really assisting people in their lives with their needs. So... It's great advice for me to give, and yet am I a hypocrite because I work in radio and I don't know that I necessarily am helping people on a daily basis. I'm just talking to them. And so here I am. You know, I, I ought to be able to walk the walk as well as talk the talk and, and really help people. And I, I've often said if I had my life to live all over again, I would be so tempted to do something like going into clinical psychology or social work because I just have such admiration for the people who can assist others in true need. And that's where we're going right now. Uh, and, and, and I mentioned the drug thing and the helping professions because they kind of converge in this story. We're going to ha- have a little bit of discussion about addiction and how addiction, a drug, a drug abuse, often comes into existence when healthy human relationships are somehow faulty or non-existent. And people who are in need of help, who are suffering and are hurting, look for some kind of a remedy. And the most logical place, the most natural place to turn for help in a time of need is to turn to your relationships And yet if those are not intact, if those are not healthy, then you just default to something else. And oftentimes it is drugs and and, and the problem of drug addiction. So that's where this next story goes, produced by Sam Porter of our staff. He spoke with Dan Oakes, who is from Liberty, Missouri, originally the seventh of nine children. Dan Oakes obtained a bachelor's degree from ASU, went on to complete a master's degree in education and counseling at NAU. Dan Oakes is a licensed professional counselor and is currently in private practice and has also been the clinical director of youth services for A New Leaf, the name of that organization, Youth Services for A New Leaf. And uh, here is the piece with Dan Oakes talking about some of the issues I just mentioned. As far as I can tell, everyone seems to have emotional issues. So at what point would you suggest someone going in to see a counselor? Well, I think uh, that evaluation is very personal for an individual. However, um, I think when a particular issue in your life begins to affect your primary relationships, your ability to work, your ability to sleep, your general level of 
happiness, your ability to maintain a sense of emotional regulation. These are the things that uh, when normal uh, life problems stick around too long, we're, we're unable to relieve stress in certain ways, that when it intrudes in those areas, it can, be a, it can be an appropriate time to uh, seek some professional help. Now, I think I want to say there that I think that's secondary to, if that happens, to seek and reach out for help in natural areas of your life. First, the research tells us that natural supports are more effective than informal supports. So counseling is kind of an informal support. It doesn't really exist in our real life, but if you can reach to a family member first or to a, you know, to a pastor or a, a church leader or somebody that can be of resource that loves you and cares about you, I think that's the first place individuals can go. Some people don't have that, or sometimes uh, that's not enough, and then I think it's appropriate to seek professional help then. And it, it seems like each counselor has a personal approach to addressing their clients' issues, and if I understand correctly, you're, you tend to focus on the issue of attachment. So how did you come to settle on this approach as opposed to others, and what does this approach entail? Well, I think, uh, I think it's an issue of clarification. I, I do absolutely utilize the attachment approach, um, but initially the, the first step is do some evaluation about what the issues are. And if you question about somebody's history or those things, you'll find uh, different, different themes or different issues come up with which need to determine your approach. Um, with that, though, I will say that uh, I have found that attachment is often a universal theme that is a part of many major mental health issues or, or diagnosis and I have seen its impact as so versatile and that it's often at the core of, of symptomology that looks otherwise diverse. So um, somebody that's OCD with some review and assessment, you can determine there's a strong attachment disruption in their life that affected their overcompensation behaviorally or someone with an addiction that uh, struggled in er early areas of their life make, having attachment with family members. or So it just seems to be a common theme there. And the research is telling us more and more about our ability to emotionally regulate is highly connected to our ability to attach. And so if you look at emotional dysregulation as the result of not being able to attach, then that emotional dysregulation look symptomatic of lots of different mental health issues. And so that research and those, those things that I've read have made me feel and believe that that's a core theme. And so while I may not always use the attachment approach, I'm always going to assess for a person's ability to, to attach to others as a primary theme and make some determination about their ability to do that. If I were a listener and wanted to take some uh, preventative action with my own children and helping them to form healthy attachments? What would be some of your suggestions in doing that? That is a great question because the research is, is really um, clear about what, what creates that for children. And there's some raw behaviors that create attachment that's in the research. And I'm going to paraphrase them for you. But there's, there's six that are talked about 
they are eye contact, smile, touch, tone, movement and gesture, and sugar. And so these, uh, these behaviors, these raw behaviors, raw behaviors meaning that they come in the context of other bigger behaviors, are what creates attachment. So if we have time with our kids where we have plenty of eye contact and we have soft tones and um, there's lots of smiling and some laughter and some movement and gesture and that uh, attachment is created. There's uh, a lightness and openness and a willingness to attach. However, if a home or a parenting style has a lot of severity and intensity in it with lots of urgency, with sharp tones, um, if this is chronic, then kids tend to develop uh, a style of attachment that is, uh, th- that is uh, strained or difficult, and they don't seem to trust. They learn not to trust others. So the best, the best thing to do is to always have a soft tone, to look your kids in the eye, to smile a lot, and to, to have in our daily behaviors have a lot of those raw behaviors of attachment involved. It doesn't mean that you can't correct your kids at all. In fact, when you correct them, the goal is to have an attachment tone involved that expresses love inside of the redirection. That's, that's how we best uh, create attachment in our kids. When kids don't get attachment from their parents, what, what do they move towards in terms of attachment? So the, uh, the term we use for what kids do without attachment is that they emotionally dysregulate. Some kids, um, their dysregulation looks very much like anger, and that's a kind of hypervigilant form of dysregulation. Other kids, it looks like withdrawal or depression, where they pull away or they hide or they withdraw. So it can be very different for, for each kid but have the same, same core. And oftentimes the kids will take that cue from their parents they will learn how to dysregulate through anger because they watch their parents freak out or get extremely angry, or they learn to dissociate or isolate because that's what they're seeing their parents do. Uh, we t- our kids tend to learn from their parents how, how their emotions dysregulate, and that tension that's kind of in the home or in the tone of the home really affects that and makes it amplify. So if a child began to do that and then later in life got into drugs or other unhealthy involvement, what could they do to fix or adjust their attachment style? And how do you help them in that process? Well, that process, is, it's great that we, our conversation has gone this way because that's exactly um, what has to happen. They have to relearn or find again the kind of trust necessary to allow them to reach out to others because the addiction has provided them a substitute, no matter what the addiction, it's provided them a new attachment, something they go to when they're sad, something they go to to celebrate when they're happy. It's kind of an always there uh, place to go for solace, which is what our primary relationships are intended to provide for us. And so when those attachment structures to others in healthy ways are disrupted and we have gone to addictive behavior, the, the process of change requires um, a new skill set, redeveloping the instinctual need to reach out to others. And sometimes we have to solicit and enlist a, a great support team in somebody's life. We have to teach them attachment responses. 
and then we have to kind of cognitive behaviorally structure a plan where the the person that's struggling um, is practicing daily reaching out to others when they feel uh, the distress of life that usually will cause the addictive behavior. And so we go to great lengths to create some programming around this new reaching out skill so that they can reach out to others and begin to feel a peace and a relief that comes from connectedness and that that, uh, that connectedness then produces a, a, a form of emotional resilience, that that ability to emotionally regulate where they feel like they can do hard things. And so we walk through that process in great detail to help people develop those new structures. Now, I can only imagine how fulfilling it would be to help someone go through that process and to find success in that. Uh, what's been your experience? How, how do you feel when you're successful, when it actually works? Well, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. I think I become a commentator because when it's successful, the individual is finding again uh, a connection with others in their real life that they maybe didn't have before. And so as, a, as an instructor, but as a commentator, I tend to sit next to them as they are refinding that with others in their life. And that is it's very rewarding to see, and it, it makes me feel finished. What, and what I mean by that is once they have that ability, they really don't need me anymore. That's my goal to work myself out of a job. If I, if I, as a counselor, think that I'm the one they have to attach to, it's very misleading because I'm not going to be there in their everyday life. I have to get them to develop those informal, in their real-life supports. Great. Well, thanks for your time, Dan. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And Sam Porter of our morning show staff speaking with Dan Oaks, who is a counselor in Mesa, Arizona area, and is the clinical director of youth services for A New Leaf. He is a licensed professional counselor. As I was listening to that, I don't know what your thoughts were, but I'll tell you, sometimes I think I understand the theoretical basis for what they're trying to do, and I I kind of enjoy the explication of the theory behind that, but I also really value the real practical advice, and lingering in my mind was that advice of when talking with a child uh, that you're responsible for or helping to, to raise or or working with, you've got to smile and use soft tones and eye contact. Even when correcting bad behavior, you still have to avoid the uh, overwrought sense of urgency or the stress or the tension. I just find that tremendously benefit beneficial uh, because I am a father and I'm concerned about these things. I do it wrong so often, and I'm going to take that to heart, the, the smile, soft tones, eye contact, even when correcting bad behavior. Great stuff on the morning show for you. More coming up after this. This is Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Marcus Smith.